We're going to look to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Last week, we had a, an introduction, introduction to this book, and we looked at some ways that people approach in, interpreting this book, and uh, we had some reasons why we should study this book. There are also uh, a few uh, handouts of the position that we, uh, we hold and the way in which we're going to be approaching that. Out in the foyer, if you'd like to pick one of those up, hopefully there are some uh, left. You know, almost everyone has a fascination with knowing the future. And I think that's why, as, as hokey as, as they are, there have always been things like um, fortune tellers and crystal balls, palm readers, horoscopes, tarot cards... Fortune cookies, Ouija boards, uh, psychics. Remember the 900 psychic lines and, and you know, the self-proclaimed prophets. So people just, they, they're interested in the future. There are still people today that look to the 16th century prophet named Nostradamus to tell us about events that are happening in 2020. I mean, this last, the end of the year, there were people predicting what's going to happen and using Nostradamus. In our more sophisticated culture, we kind of gotten our future fix through media. There's just been an explosion of movies and television shows uh, about time travel, about the future, about wormholes and, and the like. And one of the most popular movies of our time is one in which a young teenage boy travels back in time to meet his parents when they were teenagers in order to see and influence the future. It's called Back to the Future. And, of course, that's just fiction. You understand that. All of these things are fiction. Uh, There is no way... To know the future. There's only one person who knows the future, and that is God himself. Uh, Only in Scripture can truth about the future be found. There are some Old Old Testament prophets such as Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah. They give us some brief glimpses into the future, as does Jesus at his Olivet Discourse. And the Apostle Paul and Peter in their epistles. But the book of Revelation is the book that provides the most detail into the future in all of Scripture. And it's the fitting capstone of God's revelation to man in the Bible. The book of Revelation unveils the future history of the world all the way from to, to world, world history's climax, Jesus coming, setting up his earthly kingdom and his eternal kingdom. And so today, we will see that Revelation takes us back to the, to the, to the first century, to the time of the apostle John, in order to show us the future. So we're going back to the future, as it were. And I want you to read with me in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read just six verses today. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear these words which of, of prophecy and heeds the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, indeed, you are holy. You are righteous. You are just. You are pure. You are glorious. You are gracious and kind and patient. You are creator. You are sovereign. And you are our hope. You are the one who shows us the future and gives us hope. And we praise you for the book of Revelation, for all that it shows us, for all that it encourages us. And, and we pray that today, Lord, we don't see, we know we don't see your glory like we should. We ask you that your spirit would open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, to exalt him in our hearts, to encourage us. And Lord, we pray that uh, for those that have never believed, truly believed and, and committed their lives to Jesus Christ, that today you would show them his worthiness and their need of turning to him in faith. And so we commit this time to you now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the passage that we just read reveals five reasons why God allows us to see the future as he shows, as he reveals it here in this book. First, Revelation takes us back to the future to unveil the majesty of Jesus Christ. We get to go back and, and see the future so that we can see the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. The very first line of, first of chapter 1, verse 1, says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I told you last week that the word revelation translates the Greek word apocalypsis, which we get our English word apocalypse from that. If you look up the word apocalypse in the dictionary, it says this. It says the complete final destruction of the world as described in the biblical book of Revelation. That's the de dictionary definition. But the Greek word apocalypsis or apocalypse has absolutely nothing to do with the destruction of the world. 
is a word that simply means an uncovering, an unveiling, a disclosure. It's not hiding anything, it's revealing something. And so while all Scripture is, in a sense, revelation from God, the book of Revelation is uniquely the revelation of Jesus Christ. And please note that revelation is singular, not plural. It's not the book of Revelations. It's not multiple revelations. It is a revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. So there's a sense in which revelation is revelation truth from Jesus. But in a far greater sense, this book is the revelation about Jesus. An unveiling of who he is. In other words, Revelation was written to unveil the majesty of Jesus Christ. Now, the Gospels are also about Jesus. But they present him in his first coming, in his humiliation. They present him as the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That fact is not forgotten in the book of Revelation. In fact, you will find that, uh, the, that John refers to Jesus as the Lamb 31 times in his prophecy. But the purpose of the book of Revelation is to exalt Jesus Christ in his second coming glory. And it presents him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. W.A. Criswell, the longtime pastor at First Baptist Church, Dallas, spent three years going through the the book of Revelation. Uh, I I don't think we're going to go that long, probably two years, eight months. But uh, he spent three years going through the book of Revelation. Karen and I had the opportunity to hear him preach many years ago when we were in in Fort Worth. And an incredible man. Um, He writes this about why Christ's glory must be revealed. Quote, the first time our Lord came in this world, he came in the veil of our flesh. His deity was covered over with his manhood. His Godhead was hidden by his humanity. Just once in a while did his deity shine through as on the Mount of Transfiguration or as in his miraculous works. But most of the time, the glory, the majesty, the deity, the wonder, and the marvel of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, were veiled. These attributes were covered over in flesh, in our humanity. He was born in a stable. He grew up in poverty. He knew what it was to hunger and thirst. He was buffeted and beaten and bruised. He was crucified and raised raised up as a felon before the scoffing gaze of the whole earth. The last time that this world saw Jesus was when it saw him hanging in shame, misery, and anguish upon the cross. He later appeared to a few of his believing disciples, but the last time that this unbelieving world ever saw Jesus was when he saw him die as a malefactor, as a criminal crucified on a Roman cross. That was part of the plan of God, part of the immeasurable, illimitable grace and love of our Lord. By his stripes, we are healed. But then is that all the world has ever seen of our Savior, dying in shame on the cross? No, it was part of the plan of God that some that someday the unbelieving 
blaspheming, godless world shall see the Son of God in His full character, in glory, in majesty, in the full-orbed wonder and marvel of His Godhead. Then all men shall look upon Him as He really is. They shall see Him holding in His hands the title deed to the universe, holding in His hands in the authority to all creation in the universe above us and the universe around us and the universe beneath us, holding this world and its destiny in His pierced and loving hands, end quote. Every vision of Christ in Revelation is one of, of wonder, of majesty, of glory. And so Revelation, Revelation takes us then back to the future so that we can see the unveiling of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. There's a second reason God allows us to see to the, into the future. Revelation takes us back to the future to encourage the perseverance of true believers. Perseverance. Well, that is a great word. In the last part of verse 1, it says, which God gave to him to show the bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, notice that the book of Revelation, which we just saw, was written to unveil the majesty of Jesus Christ, is a gift from God the Father to his son, Jesus Christ. It's a gift. And as a reward for his perfect humility, his sacrificial service, the father promises that he will exalt his son. The apostle Paul tells us about this in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. And he says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of, uh, of a man, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's exaltation that is promised in these verses is fully revealed to us in the book of Revelation. It contains that full disclosure of Christ. In glory. Now, the Father's first token to the Son in glorifying Him was the resurrection. He rose from the dead. He overcame death. The second token from the Father was the ascension. He, he rose, came from the earth, He went to heaven, and He sat down at the right hand of, of the Father in heaven in glory. 
And then he sent the, the third token was he sent his Holy Spirit into the world to represent Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Christ is here now among us. But the final token was the Father's gift of the book of Revelation, which reveals the glory with which Christ will have at his second coming. So, you see, the Lamb has become the Lion. And like the Apostle Paul, John encourages believers in difficult circumstances to have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had when he was on the earth. You see, we are to humble ourselves and become uh, faithful bondservants. We are to persevere through adversity and persecution and mistreatment and to be obedient even to the point of death. We may face the same kinds of things in the world and the life in which we live that Jesus Christ himself faced. But Jesus Christ endured all of that. He persevered through all of that. And then he was exalted. And that is the same promise that God makes to us. We are to persevere. We are to endure. But we have the assurance that we will also be exalted with Christ in the future. And and Paul describes this kind of life as he continues in in Philippians chapter 2. Reread in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What's Paul saying? True believers persevere. They keep on serving without grumbling and without questioning. When they're facing persecution, when they're facing difficult times, they're not grumbling. Oh, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Oh, woe is me. They're not questioning God. Is God really a good God? You know, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? True believers persevere because they see the end result. They're not focused on the right now of their difficulty. And, and you see, they, they stand out like lights in darkness because they, they live pure lives in a, in a corrupt and perverted world. Everybody sees that clearly. There's a difference in them. And you see, they hold fast, it says, to the word of life until the day that Christ is finally revealed. We persevere, friends. We persevere through this life. This is not the end. We have a far greater future. He shows us the future so that we can persevere. And if like Christ... We have demonstrated true faith and perseverance. We will be exalted with Christ in his kingdom. You know, the book of Revelation was was given to the Son, it says, to show to his bondservants his inheritance from the Father to encourage us to persevere. In other words, look at this. Jesus opens up his will from the Father And he shows it to us. He shows us his glorious inheritance. And he's saying to us, 
if you persevere with me, this is what you get. You're my, you will be my child. You're my bondservant. You, you, you're in my household. You get what I get. So persevere. And we can look at his will because in the book of Revelation, the seals are open. They're broken so that we can see what it is. And, and unlike most human wills, Jesus has made his will a public document for us. But listen, even when he opens it up, not everybody can understand it. You see, only a special group of people have the privilege of understanding the truths that are found in this book. John describes those people here as his bondservants. Bondservants translates the Greek word doulos. It literally means a slave. But, but doulos is a special kind of slave. It's a slave that willingly serves because he loves his master. This kind of slave is described for us in Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. And he says this, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door, the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Now, I don't have to, time to go into all that means, but the bottom line is this. This is a person who willingly come, wants to serve his master because he loves him, because of the relationship that they have. He's in a submissive position, but it's still a love kind of relationship. And, and this is the reason why unbelievers really cannot understand the book of Revelation. It just seems incomprehensible to them. It just seems like chaos so often to them because, you see, it wasn't given to them. It was given to his bondservants. It was given to people who are followers, who are willing followers, who love him, who are true believers. And so, you see, if you refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord, you can't expect to really understand the book of Revelation. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, a natural man, an unsaved man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Lost people read this book and say, oh, that was a bunch of something those people back there made up. You know, it was, it's, a, it's, it's just fantasy like the kind of movies we watch today. They don't get it. They don't, they don't understand it. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 11, uh, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. He's talking about believers who opposed to unbelievers. He continues in verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. I can read this book, uh, this book and, and I can even explain it to people, but lost people just don't really get it. It's just a register with them. See, people didn't understand what Jesus was saying back then. And they, they're not, they're not going to understand things what he says about the future either. So, to the, but to the bondservants, to his faithful believers, see, the unveiling of this book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ and their eventual exaltation. Not only do we see Jesus exalted, we get to see the exaltation we will experience.
So this is the only book in the New Testament that it was d- delivered by angels. Interesting. What other great uh, revelation was delivered by angels? Well, it was the law, right? Uh, Galatians 3.15. Uh, you have uh, received the law as ordained by angels. See, the law, giving the law was a big deal, right? It came with all kinds of drama. And let me tell you, the giving of the book of Revelation is a big deal because it, it presents to us the future, our future, Christ's future. It's a big deal. And not only were angels involved in the transmitting of this book, but they also play a, rom, a prominent role in the scenes in the book. They're involved in it. In fact, the word angel or angels uh, appears 71 times in this book, more than any other book in the Bible. Now, in the last part of verse 1, we're told that the, this angel communicated this revelation to his bondservant, John. And last week, we learned that this John is the son of Zebedee, the author of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. He's one of the apostles of Jesus, and he's also the author of the epistles of John. And last week, uh, we saw that John, according to verse 2, testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Why? To encourage the perseverance of true believers. We get to see the future because it encourages true believers to persevere. Now, right now, you may not feel that need. But if you were to go back to the day of the Apostle John, and the Romans were taking you and throwing you out into the middle of an arena and releasing a lion to watch you get torn apart as entertainment for people in an arena, you would feel the need to know the future so that you could persevere. If you had lived in that day and you had been covered, you saw people, Christians, being covered in tar and then set on fire, you would feel the need to have some encouragement to persevere in your life. If you were living in a Muslim country and you became a believer and then you saw people who had professed faith, who had turned from the Muslim faith and become Christians, kneeling on their knees about to be beheaded, then you would feel a need for some encouragement to persevere in your faith as a believer. If you were living in China today and you saw your pastor dragged off to one of the new 240 concentration camps recently built, been built for re-education purposes, if you saw them dragged off into that, then you would sense, sense a, a need for encouragement to persevere. You might even sense a need for encouragement to persevere if you had a, a business which was being sued or being closed down because of your stand of your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, 
Revelation is written to give us encouragement to persevere. We need that. You may not feel it fully right now, but I guarantee you, friend, you will. Uh, many people in this room are going to feel it for the, for the end of their life. Revelation takes us back to the future to warn of the imminence of Christ's return. In verse 3, John calls his writing a prophecy. And it is a prophecy, and it's a prophecy about, according to verse 3, the things which must come, must, must, or excuse me, verse 1, things which must soon take place, and verse 3, for the time is near. In other words, the book of Revelation's emphasis on the future sets it apart from all other New Testament books. The, the Gospels, they, as we've mentioned before, they can't contain some references to the future, but, but the Gospels are primarily focused on the life and the, and the ministry of Jesus Christ when he was on earth. The Acts chronicles the, the history of the church from the day of Pentecost until the uh, imprisonment of the Apostle Paul in Rome. You have the uh, epistles, the New Testament epistles, like the, the, the Gospels. They contain some glimpses of the future, but their primary focus is to explain the meaning of the death, the, the uh, resurrection, and the future coming of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus. What does it mean to us in the church in the present? So what you have is you have the first five books are focused on the past, the next 21 books, they focus on the present, but the final book of the Bible, it focuses primarily on the future. So God has given us the past, the present, and the future in, the, in his revelation. And it's a prophecy, remember. As a prophecy, it, it can, contains a dual emphasis a dual emphasis. It, it portrays Christ in his future glory and our future glory, but it also uh, depicts the judgment of unbelievers by Christ leaving, leading up to their eternal punishment. Uh, commentator Charles Erdman writes this. This is a book of judgments and of doom. The darker side of the picture is never for a moment concealed. God is just. Sin must be punished. Impenitence and rebellion issue in misery and defeat. Here is no sentimental confusion of right and wrong. Here is no weak tolerance of evil. There is mention of the lamb that, that has been slain, but there is also the wrath of the lamb. There is a river of water of life, but there is also a lake of fire. Uh, here is revealed a God who, whose love... who. who lo- a God of love who is to dwell among men, to wipe away all their tears, and to abolish death and sorrow and pain. But, it, but first, his enemies must be subdued. Indeed, Revelation is in large measure a picture of the last great conflict between the forces of evil and the power of God. The colors are lurid and borrowed from the convulsions of nature and from the scenes of human history with their battles and their carnage. The struggle is titanic. Countless hordes of demonic warriors rise in opposition to him who is king of kings and lord of lords. Upon them woes are pronounced, bowls of wrath are poured out, and an overwhelming destruction is visited. A brighter day is to come, but there is thunder before the dawn. There is thunder before the dawn. And friends, you and I live in the day of thunder. 
Revelation is a, pro, is a prophecy that warns of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And to the believing, it is a message of great hope. But to the unbelieving, it is a message of terrifying judgment. Terrifying judgment. The, the word soon in verse 1 translates the Greek word tachos. We get our English word tachometer from it. Some of you may have a, a tachometer in your car. It measures the velocity of your engine in RPMs or revolutions per minute. In other words, it's how quickly your engine is, is running. And it, this word can be translated quickly or it can be translated in a, in a brief time. Now, it's true when you look at the book of Revelation, the uh, events that occur, really, they occur in a very brief time. All that happens, happens within a seven-year period, just like that. And the, the coming of Christ, it, it happens in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. But, uh, but, but that's not the primary meaning of tachos in this context. It's not the idea of the speed with which Christ moves, but it's the nearness of his coming. How soon this can happen. And soon is a great translation. Because what it does is it talks about the the nearness of this event. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 16, Jesus warned the church at Pergamon. He says, repent or else I am coming to you quickly. He tells the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, I am coming quickly. In chapter 11, verse 14, he says, the, the second woe is passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. An angel told John in Revelation 22, 6, the Lord sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And then in chapter 22, the Lord Jesus, three times he says, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. What's he saying? He's saying it's imminent. That it can happen at any moment. Nothing else has to happen in history. The Antichrist doesn't have to appear. There doesn't have to be any kind of tribulation. Nothing has to happen. Jesus Christ can come right now in this moment. There is absolutely nothing It doesn't have to happen in this moment, but it can happen in this moment. And one of these days, I'm hoping Jesus is going to let me, by the time I'm saying that, just come on. That will really seal it, wouldn't it? See, John is telling us that the things which must soon take place are imminent. So the next event on God's redemptive calendar is the coming of Jesus Christ for his church. And for that can happen. That can happen right now. Why, why does he tell us that? Matthew 24, verse 42, Jesus says, Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Why do we need to know that? Because he tells us over and over and over, persevere. Be obedient. Be faithful. Have this same attitude that Jesus had when he was on the earth. Your life is not about right here and now. 
you are here to serve the Lord. And your hope is not in this world. It's going to be destroyed. Your hope is eternal in Jesus Christ. So that's what he's telling us. And finally, or not finally, but number four, the fourth reason God allows us to see the future is Revelation takes us back to the future to promise great blessing for faithful obedience. See, it just kind of flows into it. Now, the book of Revelation contains seven beatitudes or blessings. It begins with a beatitude and it ends with a beatitude and sprinkled all through the book of Revelation are other beatitudes. There are seven of them. Let's look at the first one in here in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, let's go and look at the last beatitude in Revelation 22 and verse 7. And he says, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And of course, All that he's saying is that we need to hear it, we need to take it into our life, and we need to obey it. That's what he's saying. And that is the whole point. That's what's really critical here is that we do what he asks us to do. What he pictures here is a church service. He says, because where, do you go, where did you go to hear the book of Revelation read? You had to go to church, to an assembly of people. And there, someone would stand and they would read the book of Revelation out loud to all the people that were there. That was the only place you could hear because people then, writing materials were too expensive. A church was, felt, felt very fortunate if it had one copy of a book or a letter. And so they had to read this and they would read it over and over. That's how they became familiar with it. They memorized it. They put it into their hearts and their minds and it became a part of their lives. And he's describing here a, a church service. You're blessed if you take this word into your life and it's especially in the context of other believers. Because you see, we need other believers. We're not just going to be encouraged by the what we know about the future. That's wonderful. But we also need each other in the context of what we are doing, how we're living in the daily life. And so he puts it in the context of this of the church service. And so he says, he who reads, he 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 moves it from. Uh, from plural to, to singular, and he, or to, singular to plural, and he says, those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed these things which are written in it, it depicts this first century church service. See, the book of Revelation is God's final word to humanity. It's the end. And in writing it, it marked the completion of the canon of Scripture and its scope covers the Bible now, covers from the creation of the world to the uncreation of the world and the eternal kingdom. God has given us this full revelation. See, it's imperative that we understand this 
and that we have a worldview that permits us to live righteously and to persevere in the world in which we live. And that brings us to our final point. Revelation takes us back to the future to assure the church of triumph through Christ. We will triumph. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This book is truly unique in its literary genre. Now, I mentioned this last week, but I really believe that this is important for you to understand because many people take their understanding of how you should translate the book of Revelation from their understanding of the type of literature it is, what they call genre. And they would say, well, this book is a, is, it's, a it's apocalyptic. It's, uh, it's that type of literature, and it must be interpreted symbolically rather than using your historical grammatical approach to interpreting it. But I want you to notice that in verse 1 that he calls it a revelation, a, an apocalypsis. And then in verse 3 he calls this a prophecy as he does five other times in the book. And then in verse 4 he issues a standard greeting like he's writing any other epistle. So what you have is you have in Revelation apocalyptic characteristics, you have prophecy characteristics, and you have an epistle or a letter characteristic. In other words, it's unique in its approach. There's nothing like it. And, and, and John wrote this letter, it's very important to understand, to seven real churches that are listed in verse 11. We will see them as we go through our study. They are located in the Roman province of Asia, sometimes called Asia Minor, in what is today Turkey. Real churches. And he, and he issues this standard greeting, grace to you and peace. That's how the Apostle Paul started practically every epistle he ever wrote. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that was a standard issue that, that he begins this. Only this benediction has a, a benediction from the Trinity. And a, a benediction, by the way, is simply a spoken blessing. And, and the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, is depicted as him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, that's John's way of portraying God's nature as eternal. He, he was, he is, and he is to come. That's the only way we can really comp, we can process the idea of eternity. So he presents the Father in this way. And he's saying, listen, God is sovereign over the past. God is sovereign right now, and God is sovereign in the future. He knows everything. He's been in control of everything. And therefore, when he speaks, you can have a confidence in what he's saying, that it's true, that it's reliable. So it becomes a, this, this great benediction 
And God is the eternal source of all blessing, of all this peace, of all this grace. And then the Holy Spirit is described here as the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, obviously, there's only one Holy Spirit, right? There's only one Holy Spirit, but it's described here as seven spirits before his throne. Well, well, seven is symbolic of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it pictures the Holy Spirit as being in the presence of God and delivering all of this grace and all of this peace to believers. He's the one who, who brings it from the presence of God, from the throne of God, into the lives, personally, our lives. So we got, we have, we, it's not just talked about, it's a reality. You do have God's peace. You do have his grace in your life right now. And by the way, we're just in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, and we've already incurred, incurred seven churches and seven spirits. Seven is a big deal in the, big, in the, in the book of Revelation. And as we continue, we're going to see, uh, we're going to find seven lampstands, seven stars, seven angels, seven years of tribulation, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven mountains, seven heads, seven diadems, seven kings, seven horns, seven eyes, seven peals of thunder. You go on. You get the idea. There are, in fact, there are 55 uses of the word seven in the book of Revelation. The number seven is important because it signifies fullness or completion. And that goes all the way back to the beginning of time at creation. God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. Why? Because everything was completed. Everything was done. That's been the pattern ever since seven has been the symbol for fullness, for uh, completion in the world. And in the book of Revelation, it's the consummation of all things. So seven has got to be prominent because it's the fulfillment of all of history. In the beginning, God did it. It started, but in, the, in Revelation, it all ends. It's all complete. And so... Finally, in this great benediction, Jesus Christ is seen in his threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. John kind of mentions him last and gives him fuller treatment because, you see, he's the focus of the book. And as prophet, he is a faithful witness who always speaks the truth. In Revelation 3 and verse 14, it calls him the amen the faithful and true witness. And when Jesus was standing before Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 37, he says, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Friends, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness who cannot lie. And everything that Jesus tells us about the future is absolutely true and dependable. You can count on it. As priest, he is the firstborn of the dead. Now, that doesn't mean he's the first to be raised chronologically because there were people that were raised from the dead in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself raised people in the New Testament. What he's talking about is he's the protokos. He's the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he is preeminent. He's the greatest. In essence, he's the prototype 
of our resurrection. You want to know what your resurrection is going to be like? Your resurrection is going to be just like his resurrection. It's going to be bodily. You're going to have a glorified body. And, and he overcame death. You can be assured that you can overcome death in him. So we have this incredible picture here of Jesus Christ and, and encouragement from us. And then he's not only the, the firstborn from the dead, but he is as king, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, friends, this, this, we should all know this already. But Jesus Christ is the absolute sovereign over all things. It's everywhere in Scripture. I could take you through it all, but it would, be, it would take us all day just to get through all the ways in which Jesus Christ is sovereign and majestic and the ruler of all things. And but in, in verse 5, the last part of verse 5, it says this, To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. John just thinks about the work of Jesus Christ, and it just kind of erupts into this glorious praise of Jesus for all that he has done for us as believers. See, he tells us that he released us from our sins by his blood. Now, that's obviously a reference to Jesus' death on the cross. Here's the heart of the gospel. Sinners are forgiven by God, set free from the power of sin and death and hell. Through the gracious work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There he took upon himself our sin, paid our penalty in full, overcame death, rose from the dead to be our, our, our pattern, our prototype of resurrection. He is in authority over all things. And he is the giver of all kinds of blessing. And we are going to rule and reign with him in all of that honest and that incredible glory. That's the gospel. That's good news, friends. But here's my question. Are you in a place to receive that blessing? Have you truly trusted in Christ? Have you become his bondservant? Have you truly yielded your life to him and put your, your faith in him alone? See, he's got all this blessing for you. Have you really believed his witness that all this will happen? Do you really have the confidence that you are going to be resurrected from the dead and live with Jesus? Are you going to live with him in eternity? Is he your king? Are you his priest? And by the way, he says he made us priest. You know what that means? That means that we are the ones who intercede for this world. We are the, we are the link between God and a lost world. We're the source of prayer. We're the source of blessing for the lost world. We're the source of their hearing the gospel. We're it. And so the question comes, is, is he your king 
Are you his priest? Let's pray.